Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. What's up, everyone? Welcome to Animals to the Max. I am Corbin Maxey. Thank you all for tuning in and listening to the podcast. I cannot wait to share with you this interview today. Folks, this actually, you know what? This deserves a drum roll. Hold on. Here we go. Folks, today, oh, here it is, the big announcement. We have a celebrity guest on Animals to the Max. Who would have known we would get a giant celebrity guest? I'm talking about Dr. Scott Sampson. He is a famous Canadian paleontologist, best known for being the host of the very popular PBS show, Dinosaur Train. So, folks, for all of you young listeners out there, or for those of you who have kids, I'm sure all your kids know who Dr. Scott is. He's very famous. He was so nice to take a break from his busy schedule to sit down and do a face-to-face interview over Google Hangouts to appear on Animals to the Max, and I just had such a great time. This is a very inspirational podcast for anyone wanting to pursue a career in paleontology or anyone who wants to pursue a science-related career. This is a very successful person, and uh, oh, it was just such a pleasure. I hope you enjoy my interview with Dr. Scott. Thank you so much. And by the way, can I say something? Yes. You are our first celebrity guest. <laughs> Come on, what are you talking about? You're a celebrity already. You're, you're on all the time. No, but no, you're just such a, I mean, you're so influential. Millions of people around the world know you. And uh, for those of you who are living underneath a rock, of course, I'll, I will introduce you. Of course, today on the podcast, we have Dr. Scott Sampson. And uh, you're best known, I would say, to millions of people, especially young listeners, uh, for being the host and scientific advisor of Dinosaur Train on the popular PBS show, of course. And you're currently, let's see, the president and CEO of Science World in Vancouver. That's right. I have one of the best jobs in the world. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, once again, thank you for doing this. And, uh, yeah, I, I like I said, really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Yes. Okay, so you are a famous paleontologist. What was your childhood like? Did you always know you wanted to be a paleontologist? I actually – this is a true story that um, paleontology is one of the first words I learned how to spell – Um, that there was a time in my life when I could reliably spell the word paleontology and not my last name. Uh, So basically from the time I was three, I decided that I wanted to be a paleontologist. And and I did think about other things along the way, but ultimately ended up pursuing and getting a PhD and all that stuff. So it was a fun road. Wow. So you learned how to spell that before your last name, paleontology? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Motivation. (laughs) were your parents really supportive of this i mean were they into paleontology like how did you decide at three years old you wanted to become a paleontologist no they were not into paleontology at all and i grew up where i where i'm sitting in vancouver british columbia and there were no dinosaurs in any museums i would have loved that so it was really in libraries that i fell in love with dinosaurs my mother would take me to libraries and i'd look at books and sign them out but the other thing was that I fell in love with nature even before I fell in love with dinosaurs. So I, I had a very typical childhood for my time. I had a free-range childhood where I spent time outside all the time, and my mother would kick me out on weekends, and I'm pretty sure I can hear the I can remember hearing the door lock behind me as I went outside, you know, and it's the kind of thing that doesn't happen today. So 
it was that love of nature combined with these amazing, unbelievable creatures that just ignited my passion for paleontology. Wow. So, so you spent a lot of your childhood in the outdoors, I'm assuming. Oh, yes, absolutely. Both close to home and my parents took me camping all the time as well and hiking and all that stuff. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so I have to ask, and by the way, we have a lot of young listeners, and I have your number one fan. Are you, are you ready? She actually submitted a question, okay? Wow, here we go. Here we go. Her name is Olivia, and she's from St. Louis, Missouri. Can you say hi, Olivia? Hi, Olivia. <laughs> Thanks for writing in. <laughs> yeah, right? She's like, you know. But anyway, she's a huge fan of the show Dinosaur Train, and she wanted to know, what was your favorite dinosaur as a kid? Oh, that's easy. My favorite dinosaur when I was a kid was Stegosaurus, the one with all the plates and spikes on its back. And um, I kept that through most, in fact, through all of my childhood. And then I've switched. So most recently, it's a dinosaur that I had the pleasure of naming called Cosmoceratops. Oh, man. That is insane. I, I can't believe. So how did you get to name your own dinosaur, Dr. Scott? Is it because you're Dr. Scott? <laughs> no, no. It's because I'm a paleontologist and I've traveled around the world and I've worked in digs and I didn't discover all the dinosaurs that I named, but I was involved with all the projects. And often I was the paleontologist studying that group of animals. And I've had the pleasure of um, being involved in naming 15 different dinosaurs. So it's, uh, it's been a real pleasure. Oh my goodness. So what goes, okay, I'm sorry. I'm just going to like sidetrack my questions. What goes into naming a dinosaur like Cosmoceratops? Like how did this, is, is that cause is, is it your favorite drink? Like, I don't like how, like how do you name Cos Cosmoceratops means in Latin ornate horned face. And this is, or ornamented horned face. And this is a horned dinosaur with all kinds of extra horns. So everybody knows about Triceratops, Three horns on its head, one on the nose, one over each eye. Cosmoceratops blows it away, 15 horns on its head. So hence the name ornate horned face. But you can call a dinosaur just about anything you want. I once named a dinosaur after a rock star. Uh, there's a dinosaur called Mashikasaurus Knopflerai, named after Mark Knopfler, the lead singer of the then band Dire Straits. Uh, and uh, we named it after him because we would play music in the field. And when we did serendipitously, we would discover bones of this new little dinosaur. And one night in camp, probably too late at night, somebody said, hey, why don't we name it after Mark Knopfler? And we, at the time, it seemed like a great idea. Later on, when I was attacked by the British tabloids, it didn't seem quite so <laughs> Uh, clever. Uh, they accused me of naming it after Mark Knopfler, either because A, he is a rock dinosaur, or B, he is ugly and buck-toothed. <laughs> Fortunately, Knopfler took it in the spirit intended and um, sent a message saying he was honored, and he sent me 15 tickets to his concert in New York City, and all worked out well. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I would say that's an honor to have a dinosaur named after you. I'm waiting, Dr. Scott. I'm waiting for that. Okay. <laughs> the Maxiosaurus. That's insane. So can we go back a little bit to your early beginnings? So, of course, you went to college. You pursued a Ph.D. How was that? I mean, was it difficult? Just, I mean, just trying to study paleontology? Were there any setbacks where you thought, man, maybe this isn't the route that I want to go? I actually did an undergraduate degree in anthropology with interested in human evolution, then a master's degree in that field. 
Um, and then I realized that there are so few fossils in the world for early human evolution that I could go and in one season of collecting dinosaurs, collect more fossils than had ever been found for all of early human evolution. And I thought, you know, I've picked the wrong field. I need to go back to my childhood love, which was dinosaurs. And I switched over and did a PhD in zoology. So was it easy? No, I don't think anyone who does a PhD thinks it's easy, but if you're really passionate about it, it sort of carries you through. It's like any big, long project. You better love it when you start, because by the time you're done, you're going to sort of just want it to be over. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you, do you remember your first dig? Does it like, do, do you remember that? I do. It was in Alberta, Canada. And my first fossil that I ever found of any significance that was beyond a fragment was part of a frill of a horned dinosaur named Styracosaurus, which has big spikes off the backs of back of its head. And that kind of set me on my course. I've been an expert. Well, I, I decided to pursue horned dinosaurs after that. And I've now named about five or six of them. So it's the one of the groups that I specialize in. Wow. And so, and how long did it take you to find that one fossil? Cause like, I mean, it, isn't it pretty tedious? <laughs> it is, but you know, it's one of those things I could take you places where you once I showed you what to look for for a fossil, you couldn't walk more than 10 minutes without finding a fossil. Well, okay, but hold on. So my vision's really bad though. And I <laughs> like so you think I could if so if, if I was in a good area, you think I could find a fossil in 10 minutes? Yeah, absolutely. They're that common. Now, is it is it anything you'd want to take home beyond a fragment? Uh, maybe not, but the thing about fossils is they erode out of the hills. That's why we find them. And that, so you have to trace or follow the fragments until they stop. And then you have to dig into the hill, hoping you're going to find the place where the rest of the skeleton is. Most of the time, the rest of the skeleton's not there. So it's only a few times in a whole season, if you're lucky, that you'll find a chunk of a skeleton. And if you're really lucky, the skull of that animal um, it de- really depends on the area you're working, though. Sometimes they're common and sometimes they are super rare. I've worked in places where we've walked for weeks and not found a fossil. So there's the other side of it as well. Yeah. And I, this might be a really elementary question, but I don't know too much about paleontology. So I'm just going to go. I'm just going to shoot away. OK, <laughs> but how do you tell the difference between like a, a rock and a fossil? Do you I mean, someone told me you lick it. Is that true? Yes, you can actually stick it on your tongue, and it's a, Sam's a weird thing, but it's not just a, a, a rock and a fossil. It's particular fossilized bone, because fossilized bone in life, um, bones are porous because they're filled with blood and things like that, and because they're porous, when you stick it onto your tongue, it tends to hold on tight to stick to it, whereas rocks don't have those pores so they don't stick. But and those pores are so small that sometimes with your naked eye, it's hard to see them. So it's just an easy thing. As you're walking around with paleontologists, it's not unusual to see them go and stick something on their tongue, which most people would think is pretty odd. But it's a pretty down and dirty and quick technique uh, when you're in the field. But I mean, mostly it's just practice. It's like anything, developing an eye, you know, it's that whole 10,000 hour thing. Once you've put in so many hours looking for fossils, it all starts to make sense. And the coolest thing about looking for, for fossils is you never know when you're going to walk around a corner and find something that no other human has ever seen. Something that has been buried for tens of millions of years, has just seen the light of day recently. Otherwise, you wouldn't be finding it. 
and you're the first person to see it. It's like going and finding a Picasso around the corner in the Badlands and you get to collect this thing and maybe be involved in studying it. And it's amazing. That's what keeps you going. Wow. I just came and I'm actually looking because I live in Idaho. So I think we have some pretty good Idaho, Montana. We have some pretty good fossil digs here. Correct. Absolutely. I did a whole, I did my PhD work in Montana actually. And there's great fossils there. Oh man. I'm just thinking of how many fossils I probably have just passed hiking through the Owyhees. I'm on a serious note. Like now I'm talking to you. I'm thinking, man, I could have found something. You must. Yeah. So, okay. So you are just living the dream. You get your PhD. You are right in the middle of paleontology. But then how did this television opportunity come about? Did you ever see yourself on TV? Yeah, no, I, um, not at all. But the thing is, if I worked on fossilized fish, and I don't mean any offense to fish paleontologists, but if I worked on fossilized fish, the TV people wouldn't have been calling me. It's because, <laughs> which are the coolest creatures ever to have walked the planet. And so I'd appeared in a bunch of documentaries, sort of a talking head. Um, and then the Discovery Channel called me up and I did a series with them. And so I'd done a bunch of television and then somebody from recommended to the Jim Henson company when they were going to start a show that they called me up and uh, and that's what happened. Well, OK, so we have to go back to the whole Discovery Channel because I'm I remember as a kid watching Dinosaur Planet. It was like. <laughs> I'm serious. And I lived in the middle of nowhere. So I grew up in a very tiny cabin in the middle of Southern Idaho in the mountains. But I remember we had this little rinky dinky satellite. And I remember I was so excited trying to get the signal or whatever to watch it on the discovery channel. I remember watching it. It was groundbreaking. That was pretty fun. We filmed it in LA and the discovery channel set up my own personal lab that I um, was supposed to be my lab to work in. And CSI Miami was this TV show that was really popular at the time with all these bright colors in the lab. And it was all very modern looking and stuff. So they set up this paleontology lab to look like something out of CSI. And there's not a paleontology lab in the planet that looks like this. And they were trying to convince me to wear a lab coat. I'm going, we never wear lab coats. I'm not wearing a lab coat. So we had to go through this thing about what the science is and how we do it. But um, it was, it was a thrill to work on that show. And uh, lots of people have come back to me later and said, I watched that when I was a kid. And, and, you know, I, that's what keeps me going doing the TV stuff, because I just think when I was a kid, if there were shows like Dinosaur Train or Dinosaur Planet, I would have just eaten those up. And, and to see the impact that that has on kids and how it gets them excited about science just makes all that stuff worthwhile. Yeah, so the stats, over 100 million people watch Dinosaur Train. I, I don't Well, I don't even know that that's – I haven't seen that stat in particular. I do know that – it airs in, or has aired in over a hundred countries. Um, okay. Well, I'm going to look. Well, let's just say it, Doctor Scott. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, I've I've been told that I sound really silly dubbed into Polish. Uh, <laughs> but um, but it is so much fun. And when they initially contacted me, it was actually a vice president for the Henson Company who called me up one day, and she said. Dr. Sampson, you know, this is back when people called me Dr. Sampson. And she said, we're doing this show on dinosaurs. We're going to put it on PBS. We're looking for a science advisor and maybe a host and stuff. Are, are you interested? And I said, well, what's it going to be called? And she said, well, we're going to call it Dinosaur Train. And I said, you can't call it that. And she said, how come? And I said, 
because I'm a paleontologist and I spend, you know, a bunch of my time trying to convince people that humans and dinosaurs didn't live at the same time. You can't go sticking them on trains like the Flintstones or something. <laughs> and she said, no, 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 no. Don't worry. We're only going to put dinosaurs on the train. And I stopped and I thought, holy crap, that's brilliant. That's like chocolate and peanut butter if you're five years old, you know? And so um, it was pretty fun to, to get involved with that. And we had no idea that it would explode as it, as it has. And I can tell you, and actually this is the first, you're the first interview I've done since it was confirmed. We just, um, just found out we're going to do another season of dinosaur train. So we're just starting production on season five of dinosaur train. And by the time we're done, we will have completed a hundred half hours. Oh my goodness. A hundred half hours. So that is, and I have to say it is a very catchy show. So in, in doing research for you, of course I watched several episodes of dinosaur train. It was so funny. My fiance came home and we don't have kids. And she's like, what is on the television? (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. No, but it's catchy. And I actually thought that it was a brilliant idea. I mean, it's a brilliant concept. And, what an honor to reach so many kids. I mean, so do you get recognized all the time by kids? Yeah, it's it's funny. And working in a, a science museum, if I'm ever having a bad day, I can just sort of go outside and wander the museum for a while and go and talk to kids. And I'm always honored when kids recognize me. And the funny thing, it's often the adults that recognize me because for two, three, and four-year-olds, I only exist on the television. There's no such thing as Dr. Scott in real life. So when they meet me in real life, they don't even know what to do. And the the range of reactions goes from coming up and giving me a hug and not letting go to just bursting into tears. So (laughs) I get both ends of the spectrum. They're kind of like, don't know what to do. But uh, it and it really is i i truly am honored yeah do you, i'm sure you get tons of fan mail don't you love it i sometimes kids will draw pictures of me and i'm just like oh <laughs> like, is this what i look like there you go <laughs> and that's fun right that makes you feel good like you know you've got these kids excited about the world and i mean you that's wonderful congratulations you know feel good about that yeah well i and that's great and i mean what would you tell a young listener right now and their family if they wanted to pursue a a career in paleontology or they wanted to be the next dr scott what would you tell them i would say spend a whole lot of time outside in nature because paleontologists are kind of jack of all trades paleontology is this weird science that sits sits on the cusp of the earth sciences or geology on the one hand and the life sciences or biology on the other. And so as a paleontologist, you have to learn a lot or I have to learn at least a little about a lot of different topics, which is great. And so I would say take lots of different things in school, take your science, but get to be a good writer, spend time out in nature and, and see where your passions take you. Lots of kids are passionate about dinosaurs and then they go on to do something else. And one of the great things about dinosaurs is that they're often a kid's first foray into science. And it's the, often the first time where a kid learns things that grown-ups don't know. So all these kids, they learn these long dinosaur words, and the parents are going, what the heck? What's a parasaurolophus, right? But the kid knows, and they know when it lived and what it looked like and how long it was, and that's knowledge that they own. So dinosaurs have this weird attraction. They're big. They're bizarre. They're extinct, so they're not going to come out from underneath the bed. And they offer this chance for kids to learn stuff that the grown-ups don't know. 
Yeah, that's true. Just going back to Olivia, I just, <laughs> just sending me that message. She knows so much about dinosaurs. Like I would be nervous to interview her because like she knows so much more about dinosaurs than I do. <laughs> um, okay. So I have to ask you, what is your favorite dinosaur movie? Favorite dinosaur movie. I would have to say the first Jurassic Park. And people often ask me, don't, you know, do you like those movies? And I go, yeah, because they're not science, they're entertainment. So are, are they full of factual errors? Yeah, absolutely. But I don't care because they're, they're, their job isn't to teach science. Their job is to get people excited. And that movie launched a set of careers in paleontology. I mean, that, that movie had more impact on the field than certainly any other one ever. And so for me, that's my probably my favorite dinosaur-type movie. I think so, too. And I just watched it. The technology, it, they still look great. 20 years so years later, the first movie is so good. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's right. exciting. And I had the chance to work on the Walking with Dinosaurs movie. I was a science advisor on that. And we had all these plans. It was going to be the next Jurassic Park. And we got the best animators and we got multiple scientists involved. And at the last moment, I won't mention the name of the company, but there was a company that came on and was involved in the distributing of it. And they decided, nope, we're going to turn it into a kid's movie. And so they gave all the dinosaurs like kid voices and all this stuff. So it went from being this hyper-realistic story of the world of dinosaurs, like the latest Jurassic Park, to being a almost failed kids' movie. So it was it was a sad day, but still fun to work on. Oh, of course. Okay, so let's talk about the misconceptions. I'm a huge Jurassic Park fan. What is like one misconception in that movie? I'm sure, like you said, there's several, but I just want to dive deeper into this. I'm so interested to find out. Uh, a misconception in that movie. Um it starts out with a giant misconception. It starts out with this scene where the paleontologist, the helicopter comes in and, the, and it's blowing dust and the paleontologists are, are um, brushing off this skeleton there and you watch them and they're exposing the skeleton of a raptor dinosaur. And, and in the space of 30 seconds, they expose about half of it. And I can promise you like that never, ever, ever, ever <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it can take you a week to uncover that much. And at the very least, it'll take you most of a day um, in almost all places. So that's a misconception is that you don't dig them up so quick. But of course, it's not very exciting on in a movie to show that. So they had to do it quicker. Um, they they got one thing right. And uh, and then it turned out that they were wrong on part of it, which is really interesting because it shows how the science evolves. They got the connection between dinosaurs and birds, and they talked about that. And one of the biggest misconceptions is that dinosaurs are extinct, and they're not extinct because all birds are dinosaurs. And with over 10,000 species of birds and only 6,000 of mammals, that means that we still live in the age of dinosaurs, not the age of mammals, which is pretty cool. Um, but the thing they got wrong, because they didn't know, is that those raptor dinosaurs like Velociraptor were all feathered. And so after the first movie came out, these dinosaurs showed up in China with feather fossils on them. And it turns out that we think that all of these little raptor dinosaurs and probably the majority of carnivorous dinosaurs had feathers. 
But it was too late for Spielberg to go back and feather them because he'd already made them in the first movie. He also made them six feet tall, look tall enough to look a man in the eye, whereas really they're more like about three feet tall. They're more like a screaming chicken than a six foot tall threat. But while the movie was being filmed, celluloid reality ended up um, mimicking real reality in the sense that people discovered a dinosaur in Utah that uh, a, a raptor dinosaur that would have looked a man in the eye called Utah Raptor. So Velociraptor is really closer to Utah Raptor. Wow. And so speaking about feathers on dinosaurs, and it's so weird because I look back at my old dinosaur books as a kid and everything's like completely inaccurate. You know, there's dinosaurs that, I mean, anyway, they're shaped or, you know, moving differently, whatever, but feathers, that's nothing I ever remembered reading as a kid. Why do they think dinosaurs had feathers? What are the theories? It's not even a theory. It's a it's it's a fact. We have got dinosaur fossils, most of them in China, with feathers preserved on the body, like right there with the bones. Just like you can say they have bones, you can see they have feathers, and you can see the distribution of the feathers. There's some species that we've been able to reconstruct the colors of the feathers. Some of them have wings on their lip, front limbs and their back limbs. It looked like there were some non-bird dinosaurs that could fly. Certainly, some of them could at least glide. Um, and so feathers probably evolved first for either showing off or controlling body temperature. And only later were they used for flight, for flying. So they were adapted for one thing, and then they were modified for another function later on. So amazing things. But funny to think that there were birds flying around with all the Jurassic dinosaurs and all those Cretaceous dinosaurs like Tyrannosaurus and Triceratops. All the way through, there were birds all over the place, and there's been birds ever since. So there was a huge asteroid 10 kilometers across that slammed into the planet 66 million years ago. If you were bigger than a German shepherd and you lived on land, you probably didn't make it. None of the big dinosaurs survived, as far as we know, but birds were the lineage that did, and then they diversified afterwards. Wow. That is just, it's just so incredible, just the science and what we're finding. I mean, there's so much more to discover. And that's a really important point, and I'm glad you brought that up, because too often kids and adults think that we've pretty much figured it all out. Like you read it, you take science in school, and there's a textbook, and it's got all the answers. And the reality is we barely know anything about science. Compared to the, the scope of what we could know, we are just scratching the surface. And that goes for all sciences, but particularly for sciences like historical sciences like paleontology. So this right now is the heyday for dinosaur paleontology. There's been more, more new dinosaurs discovered in the past generation than in all prior history. And the rate of discovery is not slowing down. So there's still lots of great work to be done. So the kids growing up today will still be making amazing discoveries as will their kids. Well, that's incredible. Okay, can I let's go to a question that a listener uh, sent in. Are you ready for this one here? Yep. Um, if you could, if you could bring back and study one dinosaur today, which one would it be? Wow. Huh. Part of me would gravitate towards those little raptor dinosaurs, but in fact, because they're so close to birds, we probably know more about them than we do other dinosaurs. So I would have to go for one of the larger dinosaurs 
Um, my favorites, as I said, are the big um, horn dinosaurs like Triceratops. And some Triceratops had heads that were almost 10 feet long, just the head. Goodness. Uh, biggest heads of any land living animals ever. But, you know, I might actually, just for the heck of it, bring back a T-Rex because oh. we'd want to know about their physiology. Were they warm-blooded? Were they cold-blooded? How did they move? How fast could they run? Um, you know, there's all this debate about whether they were hunters or scavengers or both. Uh, and they were almost certainly both, but there's still debate about that. And so things like that. I, and and it would just, it would be pretty interesting. Being kind of unfortunate for that one animal because, of course, it's not living in its ecosystem, but it would be pretty cool to have a chance to study it. So where do you lie on that debate? And I don't want to put you on the, like in the hot seat, but regarding the Tyrannosaurus, you know, being a predator or more of a scavenger. Oh, I'm happy. You can put me on the spot. I think, I think it's ludicrous to think that this animal was just a scavenger. It's, it's five metric tons and it's hauling itself around the landscape looking just for carcasses? I don't think so. This is an animal that hunted with its head. Obviously, it had tiny little arms, but there's lots of head-hunting animals today, like orcas and wolves and things like that. And this thing could have moved as fast as many of its prey. Um, it had the capacity to bring them down, almost certainly did. And the only true scavengers today really are... People talk about hyenas and things like that, but hyenas are great hunters as well as scavengers. The only true scavengers are vultures, and they can fly from carcass to carcass, minimizing their energy output. T-Rex had to drag its butt. No way. I don't think it was going – it could have done it just scavenging. So I believe it was a hunter and a scavenger like the vast majority of carnivores today. Okay. Okay. Interesting. If there is one thing, okay, and I know we've kind of talked about misconceptions, but is there just one misconception about dinosaurs you'd like to put to rest, and was that the birds? If there was one, it would definitely be the fact that people say dinosaurs are failures, and they say they're failures because they're extinct, okay? So first off, 99.9% .9 of all species that have ever lived on planet Earth are now extinct, so extinction is not a mark of failure, Second, dinosaurs actually aren't extinct. They were around for 160 million odd years before the asteroid hit, and they've been around for another 66 million years since then. So over 200 million years, we humans have been around for about 300,000 years. So we shouldn't be throwing stones at dinosaurs and calling them failures. Yeah, I completely agree. 100% agree. 100%. Okay, I have to ask you, I mean, are you still active in digs? Because I know that you're very, I mean, because you work, you know, obviously the president and CEO of the science world in Vancouver. I mean, do you still go to digs actively? Yeah, I've stepped, I ran a, I used to work a lot overseas in Africa and in Madagascar and places like that. My daughter came into my life and I said, I can't be away for three months living in a tent in some far off country. And so I started to work more um, in North America. In particular, I've been focusing the last two decades in Southern Utah. Um, and I still do some work there and I'll, I uh, expect to be out again this year in the fall digging dinosaurs, but I've, I no longer run the project as I used to because I just don't have the bandwidth. So I collaborate um, with my colleagues at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science 
and the Natural History Museum of Utah, and I um, work in southern Utah mostly still now. But it's it's definitely on the side as opposed to a full-time job. Yeah, nice. Well, I'm happy you're still, you know, semi-involved. At least you kind of, you're not traveling as much. So I'm going to have to put you on the spot again. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. If you could discover one dinosaur today, which would it be like in a dig? What would be like a dream dinosaur? It could be like a, it could be like a complete skeleton. It could be one that hasn't yet been discovered fully intact. Wow. So, so you're saying if I could discover a dinosaur that hasn't been discovered, or if I could discover one that we know about, but I've never found, is that what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. Well, if it hasn't been discovered, I couldn't even really make it up. So I, that would be a, That'd be a tough one. Um, uh, if I could discover one dinosaur. Um, there, sure, there is a dinosaur that I had the pleasure. In fact, um, here, hold on. See that? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so this is a copy of a dinosaur that I had the great fortune to find on the island of Madagascar. And it's about a 30-foot-long animal in life. And what you're looking at, of course, is the skull with all those sharp, serrated teeth. And uh, I keep this to remind me of uh, those days in the field. And when we found it, nothing like this had ever been found on the island. People had found the teeth but had no idea what it looked like. So we know that there were dinosaurs like this but T-Rex-sized living on the continent of Africa. And we found fragments of them. Um, but no one's ever found a complete skeleton. So if I could go to Africa and find a complete T-Rex-sized skeleton of one of these things, the group is called Abelosaurs, um, and the most famous one has appeared in some Disney movies and stuff. It's called Carnotaurus, and it looks like a devil with horns over its eyes. It's the same family as this animal, which is called Majungasaurus, which is from Madagascar. Wow. I, okay. Can you please send me a photo of that so I can put that in the show notes? Because I, my, literally my face just dropped. I was looking at another question of yours, and then I'm like, looked up and I was like, what? That is just incredible. Incredible. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Scott, just for taking the time. Do you have any last minute words of advice for anyone listening to this podcast? Um, for the kids out there, I would go back to my tagline that I say at the end of every episode of Dinosaur Train, which is get outside, get into nature, and make your own discoveries. Um, For older kids, just make sure you spend the time outside, but just learn about the natural world. Learn about science and just see where it takes you. Even if you never become a scientist or pursue it, it's a really good thing to know about it. So keep doing that. And I want to thank you for the work that you're doing and pushing um, science out there and pushing nature out there to people. It is great. And you're off to an amazing career. And I'm looking forward to watching you and seeing where your career takes you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Maybe we could do like a dual PBS show someday. I don't know. There you go. <laughs> Cheers. I like that. Thank you. Dr. Scott, thank you so much once again. Hey, no worries. You take care. Have a great day out there. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. Please make sure to hit subscribe and leave a rating. It really helps me out. I also encourage you to check out CorbinMaxi.com. You can contact me there personally, even suggest a podcast guest, or if you just want to learn more about animals.